Chapter Six of Sir Dominic Ferrand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Sir Dominic Ferrand by Henry James. Chapter Six. When half an hour later he approached Jersey Villas, he noticed that the house door was open. Then, as he reached the gate, saw it make a frame for an unexpected presence. Mrs. Rives, in her bonnet and jacket, looked out from it as if she were expecting something, as if she had been passing to and fro to watch. Yet when he had expressed to her that it was a delightful welcome, she replied that she had only thought there might possibly be a cab in sight. He offered to go and look for one, upon which it appeared that, after all, she was not, at least as yet, in need. He went back with her into her sitting-room, where she let him know that within a couple of days she had seen clearer what was best. She had determined to quit Jersey Villas, and had come up to take away her things, which she had just been packing and getting together. "'I wrote you last night a charming letter in answer to yours,' Baron said. "'You didn't mention in yours that you were coming up.' "'It wasn't your answer that brought me.' It hadn't arrived when I came away. You'll see when you get back that my letter is charming. I dare say. Baron had observed that the room was not, as she had intimated, in confusion. Mrs. Rives's preparations for departure were not striking. She saw him look around, and standing in front of the fireless grate, with her hands behind her, she suddenly asked, Where have you come from now? from an interview with a literary friend. "'What are you concocting between you?' "'Nothing at all. We've fallen out. We don't agree.' "'Is he a publisher?' "'He's an editor.' "'Well, I'm glad you don't agree. I don't know what he wants, but whatever it is, don't do it.' "'He must do what I want,' said Baron. "'And what's that?' "'Oh, I'll tell you when he has done it.' Baron begged her to let him hear the musical idea she had mentioned in her letter, on which she took off her hat and jacket, and, seating herself at the piano, gave him, with the sentiment of which the very first notes thrilled him, the accompaniment of his song. She phrased the words with her sketchy sweetness, and he sat there as if he had been held in a velvet vice, throbbing with the emotion, irrecoverable ever after in its freshness, of the young artist in the presence for the first time of production, the proofs of his book, the hanging of his picture, the rehearsal of his play. When she had finished, he asked again for the same delight, and then for more music, and for more. It did him such a world of good, kept him quiet and safe, smoothed out the creases of his spirit. She dropped her own experiments, and gave him immortal things, and he lounged there, pacified and charmed, feeling the mean little room grow large and vague, and happy possibilities come back. Abruptly, at the piano, she called out to him, "'Those papers of yours, the letters you found, are not in the house?' "'No, they're not in the house.' "'I was sure of it. No matter. It's all right,' she added. She herself was pacified. Trouble was a false note. Later he was on the point of asking her how she knew the objects she had mentioned were not in the house, but he let it pass. The subject was a profitless riddle, 
a puzzle that grew grotesquely bigger, like some monstrosity seen in the darkness, as one opened one's eyes to it. He closed his eyes. He wanted another vision. Besides, she had shown him that she had extraordinary senses. Her explanation would have been stranger than the fact. Moreover, they had other things to talk about, in particular the question of her putting off her return to Dover till the morrow, and dispensing, meanwhile, with the valuable protection of Sydney. This was indeed but another face of the question of her dining with him somewhere that evening. Where else should she dine? Accompanying him, for instance, just for an hour of Bohemia, in their deadly respectable lives, to a jolly little place in Soho. Mrs. Rives declined to have her life abused, but in fact at the proper moment at the jolly little place, to which she did accompany him, it dealt in macaroni and chianti, the pair put their elbows on the crumpled cloth, and face to face, with their little empty coffee-cups, pushed away and the young man's cigarette lighted by her command, became increasingly confidential. They went afterwards to the theatre, in cheap places, and came home in buses and under umbrellas. On the way back, Peter Barron turned something over in his mind, as he had never turned anything before. It was the question of whether, at the end, she would let him come into her sitting-room for five minutes. He felt on this point a passion of suspense and impatience, and yet for what would it be but to tell her how poor he was? This was literally the moment to say it, so supremely depleted had the hour of Bohemia left him. Even Bohemia was too expensive, and yet in the course of the day his whole temper on the subject of certain fitnesses had changed. At Jersey Villas—it was near midnight, and Mrs. Rives, scratching a light for her glimmering taper, had said, "'Oh, yes, come in for a minute if you like,' in her precarious parlour, which was indeed, after the brilliances of the evening, a return to ugliness and truth. She let him stand while he explained that he had certainly everything in the way of fame and fortune still to gain, but that youth and love and faith and energy, to say nothing of her supreme dearness, were all on his side. Why, if one's beginnings were rough, should one add to the hardness of the conditions by giving up the dream which, if she would only hear him out, would just make the blessed difference? Whether Mrs. Rives heard him out or not is a circumstance as to which this chronicle happens to be silent. But after he had got possession of both her hands, and breathed into her face for a moment all the intensity of his tenderness, in the relief and joy of utterance he felt it carry him like a rising flood, she checked him with better reasons, with a cold, sweet afterthought in which he felt there was something deep. Her procrastinating headshake was prettier than ever, yet it had never meant so many fears and pains, impossibilities and memories, independencies and pieties, and a sort of uncomplaining ache for the ruin of a friendship that had been happy. She had liked him. If she hadn't, she wouldn't have let him think so. But she protested that she had not, in the odious vulgar sense, encouraged him. Moreover, she couldn't talk of such things, in that place, at that hour, and she begged him not to make her regret her good nature in staying over. There were peculiarities in her position, 
considerations insurmountable. She got rid of him with kind and confused words, and afterwards in the dull, humiliated night he felt that he had been put in his place. Women in her situation, women who, after having really loved and lost, usually lived on into the new dawns in which old ghosts steal away. But there was something in his whimsical neighbor that struck him as terribly invulnerable. End of chapter 6